Father, thank you for a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful morning, Father. It's so wonderful to see the sun come up over the horizon and to enjoy the beauty of the day. Pray that you would touch us as we study your word today in church and as we are challenged from the message. I pray that you would just warm our hearts to you. Thank you so much for this time and for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be studying. We're starting a doctrine of last things. And it's the last one of the Doctrine series. So um, come this fall, there'll be some new stuff. I mean, we're going to start a doctrinal series again. Um, I probably won't be teaching that when somebody else will. But uh, this is the last one of the doctrines, of the 12 that we've gone through. And what is eschatology? Well, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which is last. So study of last things, future, prophecy. And why, when we look at prophecy and we look at the scripture, we have something unique in the Bible. One of the things that's so unique about our Bible that's different from all the other books of the world, all the other religious books of the world, is there's no other religious books that has the prophecy that the Bible does. I mean, there are other religious books of the world that have some vague things, but, but nothing on the order of our Bible. You look at... Uh, the Hindu scriptures, you look at uh, Buddhist writings, you look at all of this stuff, no one talks about the future things like the scripture does. And that's why the scripture is unique. And in fact, if you read Isaiah 40 through 48, if you go there, read that, just don't even need to interpret it, just read it. One of the things that God does is he challenges Israel. He says, uh, you know, you, you worship other gods, let's bring one of them up that can tell the end from the beginning. And let's Let's see if any one of them can predict the future. And if you can bring a God up that can predict the future, then you can go worship him. Because as far as I know, I'm the only God that can predict the future. Um, and that, that, that's sort of the Schaefer condensation of those eight chapters. That's basically what God is saying. Where's your gods that can predict the future? Here, I can, come, I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Where are your gods that can do that? Let's bring them up. Let's, let's see what they can do. And that's what makes our scripture so unique, is the prophetic parts of it that tell us about future things. Now, when you look at prophecy, we call this the prophetic genre. What is a genre? It's a type of literature. It's a type. Okay? And when you think of prophetic genre, think of the book of Revelation or think of the book of Zechariah. And it has imagery in it, it has pictorial symbols in it, things like that. But it's to tell you what's going to come to pass. They, it centers around predictions regarding the future, regarding future events, future things. Sometimes they're couched in mystical or symbolic language. And this is where you really got um, people all over the map and trying to figure out, well, what are the symbols? Because depending on where you define the symbol to be, you're going to wind up in different spots. And we're going to talk about later on in the lesson here, it's not hard to figure out what the symbols are. It's really not rocket science to do that. It's pretty easy if you just think about it a little bit. Um, but it's interesting when you read some of the literature that people have written on prophetic. They got motorcycles predicted in the Bible and helicopters and airplanes and you read the passage and they say, well, that's predicting a helicopter. I look at the pat. well, that doesn't look like a helicopter to me. Um, and that's where you get a lot of this sort of uh, 
I don't know, just weirdness out there. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the rules. If, if the passage tells you what the symbol is, you've got your symbol. All right? And we're going to talk about that. Now, apocalyptic passages, and we talk about apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic means to unveil, to unfold. And we talk about apocalyptic, what's, what's the apocalypse? The unveiling. But when we talk about it in our scripture, what book is the apocalypse? The Revelation. Revelation. All right? And when you read Revelation, and, and it's interesting because I've run into people say, boy, I've, I've never studied Revelation. I said, why? Well, I can't figure it out. It's too hard to understand. And I say, well, it's the only book in the Bible that pronounces a blessing on people who read it and understand it. So it's implied in that. They can read it and you can understand it. And by the way, these people that were reading and understanding this book in the early century, where were they on the theological brain scale? High or low? Not very low, not very high, were they? They can understand it. If they can understand it, why can't we understand it? It's not that tough to understand. It really isn't. Um, if you get a chance someday, take a study on Revelation. It's not tough. It's, a, it's probably one of the easier books. Quite honestly, it's one of the easiest books in the Scripture to understand. Because God wants you to understand it, doesn't he? He wants you to know it worse than you do. The, where, where it becomes difficult is when you try to use it to fill in all the headlines. That's where you got problems. When you go to the book of Revelation trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, you're going to wind up all over the map. That's not the purpose of Revelation, to tell you who he is. It is to tell you what he is and what he does, but not who he is. That's a difference there. So when we look at apocalyptic literature and we talk about apocalyptic genre, we're talking about genre that really deals with the end of the world or the second coming of Christ. The book of Zechariah has a lot of apocalyptic in it. Um, Isaiah has it. Book Revelation is just about all apocalyptic. Daniel. Daniel has that in it. All right, and these passages are not tough to understand if you just think a little bit. And we're, we'll see that as we work through this topic. Now, why is um, why is this important? Why is it important that we study prophecy? A lot of people don't even like to study it because they go to the average Christian bookstore and they walk into that section and there's books all over the place trying to fill in all of the details about future events. If you look closely, you've probably got ten books that tell you who the Antichrist is, but none of them agree on who he is. All right? um, and then, of course, we've got the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins that tries to fill out all of this stuff. And people sometimes run from that. There's two approaches. One is a, is a total fascination with it where that just becomes the only thing you want to study. Now, here's a question just as an aside. Why did God give us prophecy? To consume all of our time and trying to figure out what's going to happen? No. He gives us a general big picture, but what should we really be focusing on? Today. I remember running into a man in this church many years ago, probably 20 years ago now, and he was a supposed expert on prophetical study. I mean, prophecy. I mean, he just ate this thing up. But he was in the middle of a divorce. His life was in a wreck. He wasn't sanctified in anything. He was struggling with sin. But I'll tell you what, he could give you all 25 versions of the rapture. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Right. You're focusing on this. this God did not give us prophecy to 
to answer all of our little nitpicky theological questions. I remember taking a course by Dr. John Walbert, who's probably the grandfather of prophecy. I mean, from Dallas Theological Seminary, he's written books and books and books on this. One of the nicest guys you'll ever see, and boy, did he have the Pollock jokes, I'll tell you. He, could, he just totally atypical of what you would think that person to be. But uh, I was talking to him, and he said, you know, the thing is, God did not give us prophecy to give us all the details. We want the details, don't we? That's not why he gave it. He didn't give it to, to satisfy all of our curiosity. He gave us to give us the big picture to help us know, hey, I got things under control. So as believers, when we start seeing the world events unfolding, you know, when you see Iran, Akhmenejab running amok, and you see this going on in the Middle East, and you see all, all these things, as believers, what do we not need to be? Afraid about it. Why? Because we know the end of the story. Now, do I know how it's all going to play out and what players are going to do this and when this is going to... I don't know any of that stuff. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to give us the grand picture, to show us that Christ is in charge, that God is in charge, that everything is going according to schedule, and we don't need to worry about it. We don't need to fret about it. We don't need to stay up at night wondering if Iran's going to start World War III. It doesn't matter. God is in charge of this. And God has given us this to tell us that and to reassure us that he's in charge. Another value of prophecy is that 100% of all of them that have been prophesied that would come true have come true to this day. Those yet future are yet future. But not a single one versus people who claim to be And that's the, that's the important thing to understand. So far, God is hitting 100%. He's not failed a single prophecy in the scripture. Not one of them has gone unfulfilled. Now, were they necessarily fulfilled the way people originally thought they were going to be fulfilled? No, that's the rub, see. But they are fulfilled. So if he's got all 100% uh, all done so far, what do you think about the future? That's not any bit of a problem for him either, right? Because he sees the end from the beginning. So we can rest assured that God is in charge. That's why we have this prophecy. It's interesting, about 25, someone said about 25% of the Bible was prophetic at the time of its writing. Think about that. Any other book claim that? No. So at, when, when Isaiah wrote his book, statistically about 25% of it was, was future. Now, in his case, there's probably more that was future, but when you average all of the scripture together, about 25% is prophecy, prophetic in nature, dictating future things. And what does fulfilled prophecy do? Well, it proves the accuracy and trustworthiness of the Bible. That, that's the one thing we have. We have a book, and, and, and again, when you, when you listen to the Discovery Channel and History Channel, National Geographic, and they're trying to cast aspersions on the Bible that we don't know if it's true, and and on and on, all their noise and all their drivel, we've got a book that can be validated 
far beyond any other book, any other work of anybody of any time, because it's the work of God. Which is why the secular academy, colleges, do not touch what they tend to uphold two topics, prophecy and miracles, no. because both of those points are great to God. Can't have that. Yeah. Yeah, can't have that. It doesn't fit the modern scientific mindset. Right. Sort of like what uh, I think it was Rudolf Bultmann said, I can't get up in the morning and use an electric razor and use my electric lights and believe in miracles. One's got to go. Well, he believes in miracles now, but it's a little bit too late for the guy. Um, for you know, All the prophecies regarding the first advent have been fulfilled. What is the first advent? The first coming of Christ. All those have been fulfilled, all of them. Throughout the Bible, they've been predicted. And Christ fulfilled every single one of them. People say, well, yeah, he manipulated the circumstances. Look, it's hard to manipulate circumstances after you're dead, right? He was buried in the right tomb, wasn't he? Now pull that off after you're dead. That's a little bit tough to pull off. No. Prophecies regarding kingdoms, cities, nations. All this has been fulfilled to the letter in history. You do any study of prophecy, it talks about back in in the Old Testament, how the city of Tyre, it's going to be a place where people dry their nets. That was one of the major cities of that day. How is that going to happen? Well, it happened in history because several hundred years later when Alexander the Great conquered Tyre, he took the ruins of the city, built a causeway out into the sea to capture the island that the Tyre people had moved to. And guess what people do today on that causeway that he built out, built out there? They're drying their fish nets out on the ruins of the old city. Now, predict that one and make sure that comes to pass. And that's just one example. There's example after example after example where prophecies regarding nations and cities. Anybody meet an Edomite today? No. No, why? Because they were extinguished based on... Because God said, I'm going to extinguish them. Anybody, anybody run into a Moabite? How about a Hittite? Anybody know any Hittites? No. What happened? Wow, God said, I'm going to wipe those people out. What did he do? He wiped them out. But he said, I'm going to make sure Jew Jerusalem lasts forever. Meet an Israelite today? Maybe not today, but you've met them, right? What makes them different? In fact, someone asked, say, well, give me one, one word to prove the Bible. One word that will prove to me that this book is true. And, and the answer was the Jew. The Jew. God said, I'm not, I'm not going to be through with them. So the Hittites have gone away, the Jebusites, anybody meet a Jebusite, they're gone, Edomite, Moabite, they're gone, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, Termite. yeah, all, um, all the ites. <laughs> yeah, the termites are still here. Yeah, the termites are still here. But they're all gone. But Israel is still there. Why? Because God has a plan for Israel. And you look at the cities, woe unto you, Chorazin. Where's Chorazin today? It's ruins. It's probably one of the most beautiful spots on the Galilee, Sea of Galilee, but yet, what is it today? It's ruins. It's not even... How about Babylon? Greatest city of that ancient days. Where is it today? Um, they're digging it up right now. All of this has been fulfilled. So, if all the first Advent prophecies have been fulfilled, everything that God has said that should have happened, has happened, exactly as he said it would happen, then we can rest assured that what he has yet to 
have happened will happen as well. And that's why one of the, one of, and this, this, you got to understand as a Christian, one of the greatest proofs that we have that the Word of God is the Word of God is its track record of fulfilled prophecy. You can't get around it. Now, the way the liberal boneheads do is they go and post-date everything. They say, well, that, the prophecy, it looked like Isaiah said, but really it was said, somebody wrote that back into the text. But if you do any work in Hebrew, if you go get yourself a PhD in the Hebrew language, and you read the book of Isaiah, you're going to find very clearly that the book of Isaiah is a coherent whole. What I mean by that, there's no evidence of tampering with the text. If you write stuff back into something later on, what do you, what, what do you leave? You leave traces of that, don't you? The text doesn't flow, the vocabulary doesn't flow. There's no evidence of that anywhere. And in fact, the Hebrew of Isaiah is identical to the Hebrew of Micah, which was written in the 8th century. So it's all prophetic. They, they, they give themselves PhDs on this and they pat themselves on the back for you know, debunking the scripture. But when you look at what their evidence is, it's flimsy. It's non-existent. It's, it's an evidence that says, I do not and will not believe in a supernatural God. So I'm going to explain this any other way I can but the way it happened. It's the same thing with evolution. I will not believe in a God, so how do we get here? Well, chance... I remember my physics professor, I asked him, I said, How, you're telling me it's impossible. Entropy, the, the laws of entropy say that we can't exist. What about God? Well, there's no God, so it had to happen this way. Well, that's really, you go in to get a PhD for that? Good night. What is the importance of prophecy? Why, why is it important? It gives us hope to the believer. What, what does that mean? In what sense does it give hope? God's word is true. And guess what? I, I like the way Vance Havner put it. I love Vance Havner. If you get to listen to him, you've got to listen to his messages. But he said, there's no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible, and there's no devil in the last two. So what does that mean? God wins. You might look outside, and you might look at the world, and you might see, you know, we're running amok. It, it's not going to happen. God's lost this thing. He's losing the battle. Look, God does not lose the battle. God wins. It might look bad, it might look dark, but God wins. And many times what God did is he gave prophecies in the middle of dark times in his people's history. He would give a prophecy that would tide them over. He would say, if when you see this happen, you know that I'm in charge, I'm on the throne, everything's going to be okay. And that's a lot of reason why we have prophecy in the Bible. God is telling us everything's okay. I'm in charge. It looks bad out there. It looks like people are running amok. It looks like I'm not in control, but don't worry about it. Everything's under control. I win. And we can rest assured in that. So as Christians, it's a very bad testimony to be freaking out about world events. You don't need to freak out about world events. You really don't. Yeah, don't be anxious for anything. Don't be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. When's Christ saying that? On the eve of his crucifixion. What's he trying to do? He's trying to reassure the disciples. You're going to have some really dark days ahead of you. But guess what? I'm going to prepare a place for you and come and get you. I'm in charge. Everything's okay. It'll work out. Don't 
get so excited. And I like the way it's, uh, it works in Revelation. In Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, you have the picture of the church, right? This is, this is the, the seven churches that he's writing to. And I believe these are real historical, literal churches with real historical problems that he's writing to and addressing there. So I don't think the churches are, hist are prophetic history as some have tried to make them out to be. But then in chapter 4, what do you have? John is caught up in heaven. And what does he see in heaven? In, John in Revelation 4. Well, he sees the throne of God, right? And what's happening in heaven? Worship. Um, does he see any frantic activity in heaven? Does he see all the believers up there chewing their fingernails, wondering if it's all going to work out? What do you see in heaven? During, in fact, during the whole book of Revelation, what's going on in heaven? Worship. Heaven's not upset. I mean, the, the earth is melting apart, right? You've got tribulation coming in. You've got all the bowls being poured out, the vials being poured out. You've got the trumpets sounding. You've got all the seals being unraveled. You've got half the world's population is destroyed. And what's going on in heaven? Worship. Nobody's upset. Nobody's bothered. And guess, and when you look at the throne, guess who's there? God. He's still there. He didn't get up off the throne. And I think God gave John, or John that picture in Revelation 4 just to say, look, I'm going to show you some things that, that if you didn't have a context for this, you could really get rattled. But when you look that I am on the throne, that I am in charge, that nothing is happening apart from my sovereign control, you can worship and not worry about the details. I'll take care of the details. Don't you like somebody that just takes care of the details for you? You know, sometimes when I plan a vacation, what do I have to do? I have to worry about the details. I got to worry about, you know, where, what the hotel is and how do I get there and do I have a taxi to get there? And, oh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's, sometimes it'd be fun to just say, you take care of all the details and just tell me where to be. And I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. That would sort of be, that's really a vacation, isn't it? Yeah. We don't have to worry about any of the details. But God says, don't worry about any of the details. I've got it. Here's the big picture. Here's what's going to happen. But I've got all the details covered. And no one is going to do anything that's going to foul up the plan. I'm in charge. Prophecy prompts the believer to live a godly life in light of the soon coming of Christ. We believe Jesus Christ can come back at any time. So how should you live? Yeah. See, this is the thing we lose sight of. We, and I was just thinking about this in the middle of the night last night. We, we don't, a lot of us don't like change. We don't think of change coming, do we? But we're not going to all be here forever. Things are not going to keep going on the way they've been going on. Things change. I'm, getting, I'm having parents that are in their 70s and 80s now. and In 10 years, I'm not going to have them. They're not going to be here. You know, then it's my generation's going to hit that, that time. And we don't like change, and we get nervous about what's going on. And sometimes we just get so tight, we get so worked up in the day-to-day -day activities of just existence that we don't step back sometimes and look at a grander picture and I don't want to say we've got to you know, be macabre and get really depressed about it and all of that stuff. But look, Jesus is coming back at any time. In fact, the Bible says he could come back today. So when do you need to be ready? Tomorrow? You better be ready today. 
right? Now, that doesn't mean that we, we, we get all hyper about this. But Christ, throughout the New Testament, Christ says, I can come back any time. He, he talks about servants that he left to manage his estate. And he goes away on a journey and he comes back at a time when they're not ready. In fact, the great um, point of Matthew 24 and 25 is I'm going to come back in an hour when no one is looking for me. I'm going to catch everybody off guard. And I often said tongue-in-cheek that if you want to figure out when Christ is coming back, get every prophetical expert in the world together, have them pick the date that he couldn't possibly return, and that's probably the date he'll show up. Because he's going to show up at a time and an hour when you're not ready. So as a believer, what do you need to do? You need to be ready all of the time. You need to be ready now if he shows up. And because we know he's coming back, that should spur us on to what? To godly living. If you're a believer and you're living in sin, do you want to be caught in that when the Lord comes back? Don't you want to be ready so you're not ashamed before him at his coming? That's what John is saying. When, in fact, when John, in, in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, 3, he says, the Lord come back anytime, so... Every man that has this hope in him, what hope is that? The hope in the Lord's coming purifies himself. You, you, you work on your own sanctification. You want to be ready so that when he comes back, you're not caught off guard. You're ready for him. You can look forward to anticipation to his return. It answers the question as to the meaning and purpose of history. You know, go to, go, if you want to be get depressed, go take a college course on philosophy and the meaning of life. That will really <laughs> depress you. In fact, when you sign up for the course, they should pass out little prescriptions for Prozac and Xanax and the rest of the stuff. Because that will really depress you. Because when you look at humankind, what is, what is our future? Not very bright, is it? If we survive the, the, the apocalypse, what's going to happen in a, in a few billion years? Well, the sun's going to go out and then we're going to all die anyways. We're going to freeze to death. And if we're bright enough to get on a stars and get on a starship and maybe go to another planet, that's not going to help because in a few billion times after that, that's going to die out too. And I mean, you really get depressed. But as a believer, we don't have to be depressed. We know it's all going to work out. We know where history is headed. Now, do we know all of the details of how it gets there? No, but we know where it ends up, don't we? We know where it ends up. The details that we're supposed to know are in the Bible. That's right. And you can, you, can hang, you can hang your confidence on those. But what God has not given you the details, don't fill it in. Say, okay, I'll, I'll go with what God has said. I'll trust him on this one. Prophecy answers questions to ultimate justice for the oppressed and ultimate punishment for the sinners. I mean, we look at the world, and what is the world full of? Injustice. Did Hitler get justice yet? No. But someday, what is he going to get? He's going to get full justice, isn't he? Every sin, everything will be fully recompensed. Nobody will get away with anything. And people today who may get away with crimes, will they get away with them in eternity? No. So any evil that anybody ever does, God will take care of. God will fully recompense. God is just. Justice will be served in the universe. 
and no one's going to get away with anything. See, when you look at just this life, you see unfair, right? That, that's, that's the Psalm 73. Go home and read Psalm 73. Psalm of Asaph. What's he doing? He's, he's, he's contemplating. He says, I, you know, I look around and I don't get it. You know, the, the righteous suffer. The righteous have nothing going their way. The, the unrighteous, the ungodly, you know, everything's a bed of roses for them. Everything's going well for them. They don't have any trouble. They don't have any problems. And I don't understand why this is happening. And I don't understand it. And in fact, he says, I didn't understand it until I went to the house of the Lord and I understood their end. As soon as you bring the eternal perspective into in the view, what happens? It all makes sense. It all sorts out. You've got to bring the eternal perspective into view. And that's what prophecy does. It brings in the eternal perspective for us. Here's one thing we need to really nail down. I wanted to get this at the beginning of our study. God did not give us all the fine details. So don't fill them in. You'll get, you'll, you'll, you'll get frustrated. You'll get, you'll get, I remember when prophecy was, had a big, uh, a big resurgence in the church back in the early 70s. And we had rapture fever and all this stuff. And we had these rapture or these uh, prophetic conferences. Even here at Open Door, we had prophecy conferences. And, Dave Hunt. Yeah, Dave Hunt. There's another guy that, you know. And, and even John Walvert even came and preached at Open Door, I remember, long back then. Um, Moody put on these Moody prophecy conferences and all of this. Thief in the night, and then the mark of the beast, and then something else was in there, and yeah, and, and all of this stuff, and there was rapture fever, and and what made it so um, captivating to people is they were filling in details for modern events. As you looked around, you could they would take what was going on in the world and were trying to fill it, fix, you know, try to match it in with what was going on in the scripture. Well, you know, I don't know if you remember, but that was 40 years ago now. And how much of that worked out the way they thought it would? Not much. Not much. Why? Because God didn't give you all the details. That's not the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is not to let you know all of the events. It's not to give you the identity of the Antichrist. That's not what the purpose of prophecy is. You know, okay, in Revelation, the, the forehead or the right hand mark of the beast, and how in that movie it talked about, it talked about the V-chip that would be put first in animals and then in humans. Well, that actually has come true. Um, so, you know, there are prophecies that have come true. What are you? Sue told me. Well, all right. All right. Well, I there may be, yeah, it, there may be some things where it those details come about, but to try and go into the scripture and say, well, in, in Revelation X Y Z it says that we have a V chip implanted. We don't know if that's necessarily the case. Um. They're putting chips in animals. They got they got now. I mean, they got a GPS chip that they can stick in you right now. Tell where you where you are within five feet on the planet. I mean, they can do that right now. 
And there's a push for like Alzheimer's patients and that to have these wristbands so that they wander out of the, you know, the nursing home. They can track them where they're at. Uh, I mean, it, it, I don't know how that all is going to work out. But do I need to worry about how it's going to work out? Because I'm not going to be here to worry about it. I remember reading, um, it used to be this whole big fundamentalist furor about banking and credit cards. And they were all upset, you know, they're, they're mad because they're getting rid of money and they hate, and, and, and this Christian movement is trying to prevent this from happening. It's like, let it happen. I mean, that's just quicker, right? If that's the way Antichrist runs things, what am I going to stand in the way of that for? We get, we get fighting the wrong things. We get worried about the wrong things. Don't worry about the details. Let God, let God fill in the details. Because when we try to fill in the blanks and that, we get a lot of errors, a lot of weirdness out there. I remember reading books where somebody was convinced that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. <laughs> They're convinced of him. And then it was Bill Clinton. All right? Somebody's probably going to write a book on Barack Obama, the Antichrist. I, look, enough. You don't need to go there. Don't worry about who the Antichrist is. Worry about your own sanctification. Let God deal with all of that. You don't need to go down that path. And you've got Christians that are so busy trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, they're not working on their own sanctification. You need to get on that first. And then here's the other odd thing. And I, I just got to put them. I remember, remember the Y2K Fuhrer? Yeah, in 2000, yeah. Oh, there's so many Christians I want to just slap upside the head to make me feel better. You know, they, they're going to get their rifle. I remember reading one about, the, about somebody was saying that, you know, you need to get, you know, uh, you know, gun and ammo to protect you. I'm going to shoot my neighbor who's coming over to get some food from me. That's a Christian thing to do, isn't it? That's showing them the love of Christ. I'll shoot them. What kind of silliness is that? That's the kind of stuff you get when you start going down this path. The Christian survivalist, you know, the, the one that goes out in the middle of Montana and, and creates a compound to protect themselves from the hordes of Antichrist. Oh, come on. Let's look. I, it's so stupid, I don't even want to talk about it. You know? When you look at prophecy, and, the, and this is just what we're doing today, is just giving a general overview of all the, the topic as we start sorting down through it. When you look at prophecy, many times you have. Um, the scope. We're going to talk about the scope of a prophecy. Sometimes prophecies that God gives are fulfilled very near term. Sometimes they're years, sometimes decades, sometimes millennia. Right? Now why does he give near term prophecies for the most part? Yeah. And a lot of times, and we're going to see this, sometimes he gives a near term prophecy along with a far term prophecy. So what that's saying is if the near-term prophecy comes true, what's going to happen to the far-term prophecy? It's going to come true as well. If I can tell you exactly what's going to happen 10 years from now, probably I can tell you what's going to happen 100 years from now. That's what God's doing. God's done this again and again and again. But sometimes there are prophecies that are fulfilled only a few days or years after their pronouncement. Some examples are the death of the unbelieving Lord in 2 Kings 7, 1-17. I don't remember offhand the context of that. Um, but I think there's one where the Samaria, remember in Samaria where, I think it was, was it Samaria where they were under siege? I forget the city. 
at Samaria, Damascus, one of those. They were under siege, and people were starving. And the prophecy was that this day, tomorrow, everybody's going to be eating and, and well-fed. And the, one of the guys said, yeah, right. And he said, well, just because you said that, you're not going to see it. And lo and behold, the next day, God scattered the armies that were having, had, had the city under siege. And people went out and they had all the food they could eat. But guess what happened to the guy who didn't say, didn't believe it? He got trampled to death by the people running out of the city. I forget what the city is. Somebody can look that up and tell me what the city is. I think that's the one there. So what's going, what's going on there? Well, you don't believe it, so therefore you're not part, you're, you're going to die. And guess what happened? He died. How about Jezebel? The dogs are going to come and lick your blood. How do you like that one? Wow. Did that happen? Yep, they found the palms of her feet and the... Her palms of her hands and, the soul, and, and the, her feet. That's all they found. The ten plagues of Egypt. What did God say? I'm going to do this. And guess what happened? It happened. I'm going to bring darkness. What happened the next day? Darkness. I'm going to bring this. Guess what happened? That. He did what he said he's going to do. So here's the thing about God. Has God ever lied? No. So why, do we, why don't we believe him? I'm saying that to all of us. Yeah. If God, says he, if God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, why do we think God forsakes us? Because we forsake him. Yeah. He's never forsaken us. You've got to understand, God is a 6,000 years, in 6,000 years of human history, God has never said a lie. But in 6,000 years, years of human history, the devil has never told the truth. So why do we constantly believe the devil and not God? Because he tells a half truth, a little bit of truth. Yeah. You've got to believe God. The death of David and Bathsheba's first son. Remember what did God say? I'm going to take your son. Guess what happened a few days later? Son died. What was that, cities? Anybody look that up? Samaria. It was Samaria? Okay. I knew it was Samaria or Damascus, one. Um, but a lot of times God gives these near-term prophecies. He's going to say, this is going to happen in the next few days or this time next year, or something. Well, here's another one, the birth of Isaac, right? Mm -hmm. Abraham's 99, God shows up. Angel of the Lord shows up, says this time next year, you're going to have a son. son, and, you know, poor old Sarah's 89, Abraham's 99, and guess what happens next year? She's got a son, and just because um, she didn't believe God, the kid grew up with the name of laughter. I just like that one. <laughs> Here's laughter. Yeah, here's laughter. Um, you have a lot of these. Uh, Isaiah's children. Remember, in the, not Isaiah, Hosea's children. The book of Hosea. His children were born. They gave him names. Now, you want to freak out your kids. Go meet Isaiah or Hosea's family. Hey, what's the name of your kids? Well, this one's not mine. This one's not loved. And this one's scattered. That's the kids' name. How do you like that one? What's your name? Uh, not his. <laughs> um, but we, we have these near-term prophecies, and when they come to pass, all God is doing, he's, giving, he's throwing these little bones. Think about it. He's throwing these little bones out saying, look, I, I, I can tell what's going to happen. I'm, I, I'm in charge of this stuff. I know what's going to go on. I, ha I have it in charge. I have it in control. And we have a lot of these in Scripture. And then there's far fulfillment. What's that? Well, that's... That's hundreds of years or maybe even thousands of years ahead. And we have those scattered throughout the Bible. Um, it's interesting, in Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 1, Isaiah wrote, 
in the 7th or 8th century BC. That's around 700s in the 700s BC. And he says, my servant Cyrus will accomplish my purpose in allowing my people to return to the land. Cyrus, had not been, Cyrus would not yet be born for another 150 years. Yet he was mentioned by name in, Hose, in Isaiah. Now, what are the chances that Cyrus's mother read Isaiah and named her son after that? Not very big, are they? Now, what do, what do the liberal scholars do? Oh, well, you've got to understand that somebody later on wrote that back in to make it sound like a prophecy. But when you look at the Hebrew text, the text that has Cyrus is, is a consistent literary text with the rest of the chapter. There's no indication of any emendation or any editing. In fact, liter literarily, the text flows right along with Cyrus's name in there. What is God doing? What is God saying in Isaiah? I can pick the guy out 150 years later. I know what his name is. I know what he's going to do. He picked out 700 years before it happened. Bethlehem of Ephrata. Yeah. Virgins shall conceive and his name shall be called. You know. We have hundreds of these. In fact, we have so many of them, it's hard to count them all. Micah, from the 700, said Bethlehem Ephrata. Why did he say that? Well, there's two Bethlehems. Let's get the right one. It's the small one. You see this again and again. You see these far-term, and we see these things being fulfilled historically, hundreds of years after the fact. The destruction of the temple. Christ said, there's not going to be one stone left upon another that will not be cast down. Now, you understand, these are massive stones. These are five tons a pop. Why in the world would they be pulled down? Well, in the destruction of Jerusalem, somebody threw a torch into the temple. It burned the temple to the ground. The temple was covered by gold that melted and ran down into the cracks. So how did they get the gold? You rip the stones apart. And all that's left is the wailing wall. Christ knew that was going to happen. Forty years before it happened, he told them there's not going to be one stone left upon another that won't be cast down. The resurrection in Matthew 20, 19. Christ predicted I'm going to rise again. Guess what he did? Rose again. Prophecies regarding Antiochus Epiphanes. Some of these are in Daniel. He, Daniel has some of the most detailed prophecies of any book in the Bible that came a pass exactly as they were written. Go home and do an exegetical study of Daniel 11, where Daniel 11 really lays out 300 years of human history in great detail, so much so that all, the only way the liberal scholars, and I know them because I took their courses, the only way they've been able to explain Daniel 11 is they have to post-date the entire book to 150 B.C. because there's no other way they can deal with Daniel because it's just too precise. It's too accurate. They've got to post-date it because that's the only way they can explain it. Because there's, remember, there's no such thing as the supernatural in their mind. God had them in detail long before they happened. Prophecies regarding the Alexander the Great. He talked about this man. Now, did he name Alexander the Great? No, but he said exactly what he would do and how he would do it. And guess what? He did it, just like it said. Daniel outlined the... the uh, the world powers, remember, starting with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, then Rome. 
And when he made those prophecies, Greece was just an island full of a bunch of disconnected tribes in the Aegean Sea. They were no world power. How did he accidentally pick them to be the, next, the third world power? Well, God told him it was going to happen that way, and God knows the future. God knows the end from the beginning. So you have these far fulfillment prophecies, and all they're doing is just lending credence to the fact that God knows what he's saying. And those that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled exactly to the letter, exactly as God meant them to be. So all those that are yet to be fulfilled, guess what? They're going to be fulfilled. Now, they might not be fulfilled the way we think they're going to be fulfilled, right? But they will be fulfilled. Yep. Yeah. You've got this. You've got this massive army coming at Jerusalem, and Isaiah goes to the king, and says, "Don't worry. He's going to hear a rumor. He's going to go back to his own land and be killed in his own temple." And guess what happened? Exactly like it said. Exactly like it said. One of his sons killed him. God knows the future. It's a bad bet to try and, you know, try to. Weagle the future out of God. God knows what's going to happen exactly as it should. Then there's, I call these distant, what do we mean by distant? Those are the millennial, those are way out there prophecies. In Genesis 3.15, what did God tell Adam and Eve? The seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. How long did it take for that to be fulfilled? About 4,000 years before Christ came. But was it fulfilled? Absolutely it was. Did the serpent bruise the heel of Christ? Sure he did. But what did Christ do in his death? Crush the head of Satan. Predictions regarding the second coming, all the predictions regarding the second coming in the Old Testament, they're yet to be fulfilled. They could be fulfilled in our lifetime. Prophecies regarding the establishment of David's throne. What did God promise David in 2 Samuel 7? I'm going to pr promise you a king and a throne. A throne and a king that will last forever. Who's the prediction? Of, who's the fulfillment of that? Christ. That was a thousand years before Christ showed up, and at least three thousand years before Christ sits on the throne. It's all going to happen exactly as God has predicted. God knows the future. God knows the end from the beginning, in in great detail. When we look at prophecy, there's different types of prophecy that we find. They're direct prophecies. What is that? They're things that deal with places, people's events. God directly says this is going to happen and he gives a specific detail and it happens exactly as he said. Those are direct prophecies. These are fulfilled at a single point in time. What do we mean by that? Um, you're going to die and, and, and within one day you're going to die and guess what happens? In one day you're going to die. These are direct fulfillment. They're limited in scope. What does that mean? It's limited to one person. It's, it's a very focused, think of it as a focused laser kind of prophecy for a single event, a single person, a single thing. It's going to happen, and when it happens, it's done with, it's over, it's fulfilled. And a lot, most of the prophecy in the Bible is this. 
right? When you, when, in Second Samuel, when it talks about the, the Lord that's going to die, Second Kings, he says, you're going to die tomorrow. He died tomorrow, that prophecy was fulfilled. There's no more residual future fulfillment for that prophecy. It, it was done with. You understand what this is? When it happens, it happens, and that's the end of it. There's no future component. There's no additional component to the prophecy. And this is important to understand. Because there are other, and I call these telescopic prophecies. What do you mean by telescopic prophecy? There's a, a near future component to it. A near future component. Um, and when you look at them, it looks like they're the same prophecy. You, you don't necessarily know at the time it was given from the text that there's actually two prophecies there. Now, there's a single prophecy with two time components to it. Understand what I'm trying to say there? A single prophecy with two time components. A good example of this is the two advents in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Remember when Christ got the scroll and he read the scroll? in Nazareth and he, he says he looked up the place where it, was, where it was written and he starts reading this prophecy in Isaiah 61 1 through 2 and he stops partway through verse 2 our verse 2 he stops with the proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and he stops rolls scroll up sits down and you read that and say wait wait a minute what about and to proclaim and, and to um, Something about the day of vengeance of our God and, and, and what about the restoration of the land and what about, what about all of those other things? Well, now when Isaiah wrote that, what did Isaiah think that prophecy consisted of? Probably a single set of events that would all be fulfilled at the same time. But in actuality, what was it? A prophecy that would happen, but it would be fulfilled in two phases. Think about it, two phases. Phase one was what? The first advent. Christ came to do what? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. To open the prison house. To bind up the brokenhearted. And then there's the second part. To, uh, to proclaim the, the day of vengeance of our God. And the restoration of the land. That's a, that's a future part yet. Sam, you got that prophecy. Why don't you read that? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Yeah. Now he stopped part way through. Why? Because the second part of that, the day of vengeance of our God, that was not for the first advent. That's for the second advent. Now, if you were the average Jewish expert, would you have seen that necessarily from the text? No. Where do these pop up? These pop up after the events. After the fact. Then you say, oh, I understand. There are two phases to this. There are two phases to this prophecy. There are several examples of this in the scripture. Another one is the two resurrections. In John 5, 28 through 29, Christ says that um, 
the day is coming when all the grave shall, shall hear his voice and come forth. They'd have, they'd have done good to the resurrection of life. They have, they'd have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. And you read that and say, okay, so there's coming a day when there's a general resurrection and some go to life and some go to death. But what do we know about those two phases of that resurrection? Are they at the same time? No, they're separated by at least a thousand years. Now, was Christ wrong in what he said? No, he wasn't. He just didn't give all the details. You understand how that works. Was the Isaiah 61 prophecy wrong? No. It just didn't give all the details. And you see several examples of this where, where there's a prophecy that looks like the same prophecy to us, but when you get closer to it, you see there's actually two phases. Think about, you know, when I go out west and I'm coming up on the Rocky Mountains after the, you know, going across the plains, it's boring, going across the plains, and you come up on the Rocky Mountains, you see the Rocky Mountains, you see these mountain peaks. You think, wow, you know, I'm there. And you, and you say, I'm going to be to that. But you get, as you get closer, what do you find out? First of all, they're an awful long way off. All right, they're a lot farther than you think they are. But you look like, I think this mountain is right in front of this one. I get up there and there's a 50-mile valley between them. I didn't see that from across the plains because it's too far out. But once I get a little closer, what happens? Oh, I see there's a, a valley between them. And that's the way that you can see this here. The Old Testament prophets, they saw the first advent. And I like the way some people have drawn it here. So you've got your Old Testament prophet here. I can do well on stick figures, you understand that. And he sees a prophecy here, like this. And he's, he's looking like this. And to him, it looks like these two mountain peaks are pretty much the same. But he doesn't see this here in between. All right? He doesn't see that. And we got a lot of examples of that. Especially when it comes to the advents of Christ where you see this really come to bear. There's another kind of prophecy. This is a little bit tougher to work with. It's double fulfillment. What do we mean by that? It's not that there are two phases to the prophecy, a near phase and a far phase. Rather, there is a prophecy given that has an immediate or, or somewhat immediate fulfillment. But that immediate fulfillment prefigures a more complete fulfillment in something else later on. I've totally confused you now, but let's think about this. All right? Um, Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist in Daniel 11. When you read Daniel 11, you read about this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes that comes on the scene. And he was a great enemy to Israel, great enemy to the Jews. But the prophecies regarding Antiochus Epiphanes, although they came to pass historically, accurately, he was a real historical figure, what is he a picture of? The Antichrist who's coming. Alright? So, in seeing what Antiochus Epiphanes did, in a sense we get an understanding of what Antichrist is going to do. You follow what's going on here? Alright? Now, you've got to watch it because if you go too far down this path with some of these, you can make prophecy say anything you want. That's not what you can do here. Where these pop out is when the scripture explicitly has them pop out. Because I, remember in Christ, in Matthew, in Matthew 24, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. All right, now, Christ is speaking 
future, but the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11 was a past event in Antiochus Epiphanes. And the answer is yes, it was. It was a past in Antiochus, but it's future in who? Antichrist. All right? And that's where these things come about, where you have the, these... It, it's a double fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment. It's going to happen near, but it also prefigures a far fulfillment that has yet to fully come to pass. Right. It's borne out. The, the, there's a few of these, and, and the scripture identifies them for you. You don't have to try and figure them out. Scripture identifies them for you. All right? So don't take every prophecy and make it a double fulfillment thing. It's not. All right? But there are some that are clearly double fulfillment. And the reason is because is God is trying to say, if you want to know what the Antichrist, the final Antichrist is, well, you had a historical figure that sort of looked like him. Antiochus Epiphanes, and a lot of what Antiochus did, the Antichrist is going to do in a grander scale. All right? Um, yeah? His very name, especially the Epiphanes part, is from the word that we get, Epiphany, which is a sign of yeah. Christ. Well, there's... Or a sign of something. Yeah. Christ, well, Epiphanes... Um, there's Epiphanes... Epiphanes is that great one. Epimenes, they called him Epimenes, the madman. Okay. They did a play on his word. Called him Epimenes, the mad guy. Um, in Zechariah 9.8, you see Alexander the Great and Christ. There's a prophecy about Alexander the Great, but yet it shows, talking about the shepherd, but then there's a, it's a, there's a prefiguring of Christ there. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the and the end of the church age in Matthew 24, 25. There's a prefiguring there. What, now, in Matthew, and we're going to go through Matthew 24, 25 in detail, so I don't need to dig through the details here. But what you find in Matthew 24, 25 is Christ is answering the question, what's the sign you're coming in the end of the age? And Christ gives them, he tells them, well, the Jerusalem, the temple's going to be destroyed. Well, that's not the end of the age, is it? But it's a prefiguration of what? The end of the age. There's a dual fulfillment that's going to happen there. And again, we can, we can discern that from the text. Okay, so here's, how do, you, how do you interpret scripture? Or how do you interpret this? All right, we can fly through this hopefully pretty quickly. And I'll have notes for this next week. We'll have all this on it. Two ways to approach it. Grammatical, historical. What do you, if you approach this prophecy from the grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, what's that? A method of interpretation. How do you interpret it? You take it literally. Unless it's what? Figurative, in which case you identify the symbols and you interpret those symbols in light of just normal usage. All right? The allegorical approach says all bets are off. You can make it more, pretty much anything you want. Now, how should you approach all of Scripture? Literal, grammatical, historical, context. So, when I, when I look in Revelation and I see a burning mountain cast into the sea... How would I interpret that from a literal, historical, grammatical viewpoint? A meteor probably hitting the ocean. I mean, right? I mean, I, I apply the interpretive principles and, well, what would John have seen? He would have seen something that looks like a burning mountain. Well, that's a meteor to me, I guess. Volcano. Or something. Could be a, it could be a volcano, but it says it was cast into the sea, so I... It could be something coming from the... We don't know. But 
we apply the proper um, principles of hermeneutics, we can come up with the answer. So what you want to do is you want to put the prophecy back into the culture of that time. So for example, and we're going to talk here in, in a, about symbols. Well, let, let's, let's do that when we get to symbols. How do you interpret prophecy? Determine the meaning of significant word, phrases, and symbols. We're going to talk about how you determine a symbol in a minute, but what you want to do is you want to understand, well, what is the prophecy saying, first of all? What was the context? Why was it given? What, what, was the, what was the reason for this prophecy? There's always a reason that God gives this prophecy. He doesn't give it just for willy-nilly, no reason at all. There's always a context with it. And usually the context will determine why the prophecy was given. All right? And we're going to see this as we work through it. Ask if it's already been fulfilled. I mean, right? I mean, a lot of these have already been fulfilled. So we can figure that out. Ask if it's conditional or unconditional. What do we mean by that? If you do this, then this will happen, else that will happen. Right? We can determine that. Determine the scope. What do you mean? Is it something that's going to happen soon, far, or distant? And we'll work through these principles as we go through them. Determine the relationship of the prophecy with the whole of Scripture. Is, it, is God going to give you a prophecy that contradicts other prophecies? No. So every prophecy has to fit in with all of Scripture. And if the meaning of the prophecy is given in the Scripture, you're done. You're done. You don't need to go any further. All right? So how would you interpret a symbol? How do you interpret symbols? Rule number one. Don't treat it as a symbol unless it's supposed to be a symbol. And you can pretty much pick those out. And if the passage in which the symbol appears defines it, you're done. You don't need to go any further. This happens in parables, right? Where Christ says, the field is the world. Okay, so what does the field represent? The world, you're done. You don't need to go any further and try to make it mean anything other than what Christ said it meant. Alright? If it doesn't, if the passage doesn't define it, compare that use throughout Scripture. And look, most of these are absolute no-brainer kinds of things. If I tell you a sword, what's the sword a symbol of? War. What's red a symbol of? Blood, death, destruction. What's a horn a symbol of? Warning. No. A horn? An animal horn. Oh. Huh? No. Strength. Why? Because how did animals fight in those days? How did rams fight? They used their horns. horns. If the horn is broken off, what happens to the animal? It's powerless. See, a lot of these are easy. What's gold a symbol of? Value. Wealth. All right? What's iron a symbol of? Strength. Strength. Power. See, you know these. This is not rocket science. There's absolutely no rocket science to figure this out. Just see how it's used in the scripture. So numbers and metals and instruments are... Just put yourself back in the shoes of someone living at that time and these usually just pop out. Especially since they're, the usage of a symbol is pretty consistent throughout scripture as well. That's the other thing that, that is helpful here. All right. If the object is a symbol, there's no use of it in the Bible compared to its use in the cultural setting. In those days, how would they have understood this symbolic thing? All right. If I say I have a set of wheels, what does that mean to you? 
I have a car. So you know that. You understand that. Because our culture defines what that is. The rule and not the exception is that the symbol has one unique meaning in Scripture. In other words, it's consistent throughout Scripture. If the sword symbolizes warfare in one passage, it symbolizes that in all of the passages. All right? And don't force every occurrence of a symbol to require the same interpretation. Sometimes a fig tree is just a fig tree. You ever heard that old thing where Sigmund Freud, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Is, the, is Israel often seen as a fig tree? Sure, but not every time you see a fig tree in the Bible is it talking about Israel. You follow? And we're going to sort this out as we work through it. All right? So that's the first lesson, and I actually got through all 15 slides, so it's an amazing thing. Next week, we're going to talk about the millennial divide, the millennium, and how that has an impact on where you land in all of this. Father, thank you for this day you've granted, and pray that we would remember these things and ponder them, and thank you for giving us your word and the prophecies in it to assure us that you are in charge and nothing's going to happen apart from your sovereign will. May we rest assured in that and be stable Christians and not bashed around by what's going on in the world, but know that you're in charge. And thank you for this wonderful day in Christ's name. Amen.